you'd like to open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your most holy word. Give us ears to hear and receptive hearts. Change us and grow us, we pray, for the sake of our good and for your glory. Amen. Throughout history, groups of people have needed leaders. In fact, this need for leadership has caused some people to state that everything rises and falls on leadership. Good leaders bring great blessing to the people. Bad leaders inflict great harm on people. And so since the beginning of time, we see that families have had patriarchs and matriarchs, and tribes have had elders and councils, and businesses have had executives and boards, and governments have had kings and queens and prime ministers and parliaments and presidents and congresses. And the list goes on. And if I were to list the names of some recognizable leaders, you would probably have an immediate reaction or an impression as to whether or not they were good for the people that they led or bad for the people that they led. Healthy leadership is a great blessing to us. Poor leadership can be a tremendous curse. And First Peter has given us, throughout the course of these number of weeks together, a number of exhortations of how to stand fast in the midst of difficult times. We've seen again and again this idea of pursuing faithfulness to God even in the midst of suffering. To do good while we're suffering, he says in chapter 4, verse 19, one of the highlights of the book that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. We engage in humble submission, whether the leadership above us is good or not so good. We look to Jesus as our example of one who suffered faithfully, and we entrust our souls to God. And so Peter is giving us these ongoing instructions for how we live, but also for how we're supposed to look at things, our outlook on life, and the circumstances we engage in. And part of those circumstances is the culture around us. And that culture around us includes relationships that we have with each other and even relationships that we have in the family of the church. And so it's striking in some ways, but not surprising in others, that he takes what seems to be an abrupt turn here in chapter 5. 
when he addresses the elders of the church. And he does so in such a way that is addressing to the elders, but it's for everybody to hear. You do that sometimes, don't you? I do that with my children sometimes. I will address one of them, (laughs) but I will make sure that all of them hear what I'm saying. That's what Peter's doing here. But it feels a little bit like a sharp turn, doesn't it? I mean, he goes from chapter 4, verse 19, which says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then immediately he turns to address the elders for all of them to hear. And this poses the question, well, how are these things connected? Entrust your soul to God while doing good. I exhort the elders among you. How are they connected to each other? And I think the connection is just very simply this. Good leaders will help you in such a way that you can entrust your soul to God while doing good. And bad leaders, bad elders, will actually bring about further pain in the midst of an already difficult situation. And to be a good leader, to be a good elder, Peter points to the fact that you need to be a specific type of leader. Not just any leader will do. And so he focuses in verse 1 on the elder's role. You might see that he commands the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The role of an elder is to shepherd and to exercise oversight. At least that's what Peter says here. And immediately this causes us to think about all of the ways that the idea of shepherding is talked about in the Bible. There's this wonderful theme that is woven throughout Scripture about God being a shepherd and his people being sheep. And I want to point out some observations from that for you today, but listen to the Scriptures that I read now and just let it populate your mind with the imagery of a relationship between shepherd and sheep. We see that God is described as a shepherd in the Old Testament. David famously writes in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus is prophesied to be a shepherd to tender sheep and to wayward sheep. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 40. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we are like sheep who've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So God is talked about as a shepherd who gently leads his sheep. Jesus is prophesied about as a shepherd who leads tender sheep, but also takes on the penalty for wayward sheep. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and we see in John chapter 10 that he announces that he is the good shepherd that was prophesied about. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep listen to my voice. Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. 1 Peter 2.25 says, For all of you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Revelation chapter 7 gives us a picture of Jesus who is simultaneously functioning as the Passover lamb who was slain and the shepherd of all the sheep of God. It says this, For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so you see, friends, the Bible is rich with this imagery of shepherds and sheep and the tender, robust care of the shepherd for the needy, needy sheep. And Jesus himself, the great shepherd of the sheep, then installs under-shepherds. It's interesting that Peter's the one that's writing this exhortation to the elders, to shepherd. You might think that this fellow elder, Peter, might not be the most qualified among the people to write it. Peter, the one who was telling us how to stand fast in difficult times, learned these lessons the hard way because when difficult times were upon him, he did not stand fast. (laughs) Once, twice, three times while sitting around the campfire during the trial of Jesus, he denied his Lord. But after the resurrection, you might remember in John 21, Jesus appears to the disciples. He pulls Peter aside. He pulls the denier aside. He pulls the ashamed apostle aside. And he asks him a very important question. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? But do you love me? Not once, not twice, but three times. And upon every single answer of yes, Jesus says, if you love me, then feed my lambs. If you love me, then tend my sheep. If you love me, then feed my sheep. The chief shepherd restores the wayward one and makes him an under-shepherd. And so here, as he speaks to us, he says that elders of the church 
are to take up the role as shepherds, a role that Jesus himself holds. He's referred to as the chief shepherd in verse 4. By extension, the elders of a church become under-shepherds, and it's an apt picture because shepherds lead and guide. They protect people from danger. They risk themselves in the process. They go out of their way to go after sheep that are wandering. And beyond that, the shepherds lead the sheep to food and nourishment. Elders, Peter is getting to, lead the church like shepherds, like Jesus' shepherds, the flock of God. Elders lead the church of God like Jesus' shepherds, the flock of God. And that makes a whole lot of sense when you think about it. Because his chief concern when he leaves, when Jesus ascends to heaven, his concern for these apostles, for these elders, for these new churches, for these fledgling Christians, his greatest concern and his care is that the ones that he loves the most are well fed. (laughs) The ones that he loves the most are protected because they're vulnerable. The ones that he loves the most have an enriched and ongoing experience of them. They're the ones who he died for. They're the ones who are found to be in him and him in them. The Christians, they're the ones who, like sheep, need to be tended and fed and protected and led. And the under-shepherds are the ones who have this role. Now, it's encouraging that God installs under-shepherds on a lot of levels. It is so encouraging that one of God's ongoing graces to you and to me, one of the proofs that he just doesn't leave you alone to try to figure it out in this life is that he gives godly, loving, tender shepherds to care for us. I think... Conversely, it's the definition of arrogance to believe that you can go through life and navigate all the pitfalls and temptations and the myriads of weird beliefs out there without the help of other people. It's the definition of arrogance to say, I'm not like sheep and I don't need a shepherd. According to National Geographic, the pufferfish can inflate into a ball shape to evade its predators. It's also known as a blowfish. And these clumsy little creatures can fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and blow themselves up to several times their normal size. But these blow-up fish aren't just cute, clumsy little things. Most pufferfish contain a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. The toxin is also deadly to humans. 1,200 times the dose of cyanide. There is enough deadly poison in some pufferfish to kill 30 adult humans with no known antidote. Like pufferfish, humans... Uh, can blow themselves up 
with all kinds of pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than they really are. And this is especially true when we think that we can just navigate life without the input or help from other people. And this pride can become toxic. It can become toxic to our marriages, to our church, to our friendship with other people. And so it's no wonder that John Stott once said, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. Another encouraging thing about the fact that God instills elders among us is that this means that if elders are doing their job, that we should never be left spiritually hungry because part of their job is to feed us the word of God and remind us of the gospel with high regularity. And if you don't know what the gospel is, then, my friends, you need to know that there is hope for you in this, in this life and for the next because God sent his son that we celebrate at Christmas to show us the way to God, number one, but to demonstrate the way to God, number two, and most importantly, to provide the way to God, number three, through paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. All you need to do is to confess your sins to him and put your trust in him, and he says that he will save you. He will restore you to God right now and forever. And it is as simple as a prayer to him, but as profound as a new life that you will have in him. And elders have the opportunity to oversee that churches are gospel-preaching churches. This means that if God can use weak, Jesus-denying people like Peter to grow up to be strong and compelling elders, then he can grow anyone into any role for the sake of his glory and for your joy. This also means that churches are not meant to have leaders who are just meeting men. Some of us have come out of church experiences like that in the past where, you know, you don't really know what the elders do. They, they sit around in the conference room in the back and they make all the decisions. <laughs> well, not so. Church leaders are meant primarily to be people-driven shepherds, always living among the sheep. And so praise God. Praise God that he gives us elders and he instructs them so that we can all hear what they're supposed to do and how we're supposed to engage them. Elders shepherd the flock of God like Jesus shepherds the flock of God. Elders shepherd the church like Jesus shepherds the flock. And from there, Peter goes on to describe what the disposition is for this work because there are a lot of different types of leaders out there. If you could choose the kind of leader that you followed, I wonder what you would choose. What type of leader would it be? I'm sure you'd probably choose somebody who was competent with specific skills and abilities, but beyond what they can do, what type of person would you want them to be? I mean, if you're going to entrust your spiritual growth and that of your family 
to the leaders of a local church, I would imagine that you would want those leaders to be completely sold out, the type of people who absolutely love what they do. And so here the text uses words to describe these leaders like willing, eager, exemplary. Now there are always pitfalls in leadership. Opportunities uh, come along with those pitfalls. And so Peter identifies them in contrast to each other. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. He says in verses 2 and 3, the elders are to work not under compulsion but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples. Just very briefly, what does it mean to be not under compulsion but willingly? Well, that means that The leaders of a church are not half-hearted in their approach. They have this deep sense of desire and conviction and calling. And the idea of compulsion or duty is directly connected in some ways to the notion of love. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, A perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love. Love of God and love of other people. Like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need a crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use a crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. And so when Peter says elders do not function under compulsion but willingly, This is another way of saying that the elders of a church love the sheep in their charge so much that this is not a duty to them. This is what they desire. He says further that they function not for shameful gain but eagerly. It's another way of saying they're not in it for the fame or the fortune. 2 Timothy 3, 2 shows us that there are false teachers in this age who are lovers of money. And one of the defining parts of their false teaching is the pursuit of money. And you know that to be true. You see that all the time throughout the ages. That there will always be some that try to peddle the things of God for the sake of wealth accumulation. The prosperity preachers who litter the screens of televisions across the world are the easiest examples of this. Shameful gain. But to be eager means to have an ardent desire, a longing. To be eager means to be earnest in your approach for the glory of God, for the advance of his kingdom, for the good of his people. The third way that this leader needs to function, he says, is that not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. We've all met leaders who use their position to leverage or exert power. This is how it very often functions in the business world, and this is one of the reasons why elders of local churches do not function the way that business executives function. Church is not a business in this way. Steel tycoon and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie sums it up nicely when he says, the older I get, 
I pay less attention to what men say. I just watch what they do. Elders lead the church of God like Jesus shepherds the flock of God. And there is, according to Peter, a reward. Look with me at verse 4. He says, should they do this, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So the motivation for shepherding the flock is not fame. The motivation for shepherding the flock is not money or shameful gain. The motivation for shepherding other people is that when the chief shepherd appears, he bestows upon you a symbol of gratitude and of honor. Another way to say it is that the return of Jesus motivates our present conduct. That sounds like a theme that we see a lot throughout the Bible and even here in 1 Peter. The return of Jesus motivates our present conduct. And so we look constantly on the horizon line of history for his coming and for his return to strengthen us in our roles in the life of the church congregation no matter where God has us. And that leads to Peter's final remark. He spent the first four verses talking about elders. He spends the last verse talking about how people respond to leadership in the midst of difficult times. How does the church respond to leadership? In humility. You've heard the old saying, people who think they know it all are especially annoying to those of us who do. (laughs) But Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humble people are focused on serving other people. They don't think about themselves. And this is a apt word for our time because, as we've talked about before, we live in what's called an anti-authoritarian age, a time when we feel like the idea of being led by anybody is beneath me. (laughs) This is especially true for those of us who are younger than 50. And the reminder that pride and the go-it-alone attitude is toxic for us, and not only toxic for us, but that God directly opposes it. Drives us back to humility. Martin Luther uses an old illustration this way to describe it. He says, two mountain goats meet each other on a narrow ledge on the side of a mountain that is just wide enough for one of the animals to be on. On the left, there is a high rock face of a sheer cliff. On the right, there is a deep lake. And the two face each other. What should they do? They could back up, but that would be too dangerous. They could not turn around because the ledge isn't wide enough. Now, if the goats had no more sense than some people we know, they would meet head on 
and just start headbutting each other until both of them fell into the lake below. Luther said that the way that the goats engage is that they have a better sense than this. One of them lays down on the trail and lets the other one literally walk over them. And both of them are safe. And that is a picture at times of what humility requires of us. Elders lead the church like Jesus shepherds the flock of God. The world gives a variety of pictures of what your leaders are supposed to look like. And we said from the beginning that good leaders can be a great blessing to people. Bad leaders can inflict tremendous harm upon people. But I close this morning with just warning you about how the leadership culture of our time is portrayed in the media and what constitutes a good leader that might be flashy for the television or exceptionally innovative for a unique business environment, but might not be the type of leader that God chooses for his people. In his book, Immeasurable, Scott Jathani writes this. He says, compare two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation out of a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and an inspiring passion. He launched a movement that impacted literally everybody alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane. He began human exploration of space and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has in one way or another been influenced by this man. And by the time he died at the age of only 56, everyone on the planet, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during the same era. And in fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just about 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family and had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name and most considered his life's work to be unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. And so given the choice, which leader's strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring the keynote address of Leader A or the one with the small backroom workshop held by Leader B? If you are inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, then congratulations. You've chosen Adolf Hitler the German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by Hitler for his ardent stand, was leader B. There's a lot of things that hinge on leadership because history and the scripture give us the example 
As the leader goes, so goes the people. Healthy leadership leads to a healthy church. Healthy following of the leadership helps enable healthy leaders. And elders lead the church of God like Jesus leads the flock of God. And so we pray that God would raise up more elders here and in the churches in this region, that he would continue to empower his people to be faithful in the midst of difficulty, to entrust their souls to him while doing good, and the elders would play an important shepherding role in that. And so I want to ask you to pray with me as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Pray with me, and we'll ask God for these things. Father, help us to have a clearer picture of what leadership is, godly leadership is, and what it isn't. God, continue to raise up godly leaders among us. Let us not be enraptured by the world's vision for what dynamic leadership should look like, but let us rest in things of deeper, more lasting substance. For you who calls are faithful, and you equip those that you call. We ask for these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.